church. It's a really good to be together again this Sunday, and as Pastor Doug said just a moment ago, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 25 today, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 6 through 9, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, I don't know if people have gone up the aisles already or not, but we want everyone to have a Bible in their lap, so go ahead and flag them down if you don't have one this morning. Isn't it amazing? It's the final Sunday of 2013. I mean, isn't it remarkable how fast time goes? Just, just take a second and, and think through this past year. Uh, go all the way back to maybe Christmas of last year and think what happened on that day and then all of the time that's passed from that point until this point right now. 365 days of life. 365 days of blessing. I mean, just think about all that God's done for you, for us, for his people, for his world over the last 365 days. I mean, God has faithfully caused the sun to rise in its place 365 times in a row without fail. We maybe didn't see it like all 365 times living in Indiana, but that's okay. Uh, God has faithfully caused the rains to fall upon the earth so that the the people that he created could be sustained. Uh, For most of us, most of us in this room, we haven't missed a single meal this year. I mean, that is God's faithfulness in our lives. Some of us may have missed some, but we plan to do that. Uh, We arose each morning with breath in our lungs, and all of that is because of God's faithfulness, because of God's kindness and his mercy towards us. We've also had 365 days of other stuff, though. Uh, Many of us, for you, 2013 has been the most difficult year of your life. Uh, Perhaps you faced a season of unemployment. Uh, Perhaps you've had a time this year where you had plans in place and you were really thinking that something was going to come through, and it didn't come through. Uh, Perhaps this year, some of you lost a loved one. Perhaps you are dealing with the brokenheartedness of a child who's gone away from Christ, who's rejected Christ, and who won't even speak to you anymore. Uh, Perhaps this year, you were given the sentence of chronic sickness for the rest of your life, and you're still trying to figure out how to process that and how to deal with that. Uh, Perhaps some of us are dealing with a divorce right now or the break in some kind of other relationship. Uh, Not just in our lives either. It's so easy sometimes as we think about a whole year, uh, we can be pretty self-absorbed about it. And it's not a bad thing to necessarily be introspective and, and to reflect for a little bit. But it's also healthy and beneficial for us to look outside of ourselves and outside of what's happening than just in the greater Indianapolis area. Uh, I was spending some time this week looking through uh, the major headlines of 2013, and here's some of the ones that I got. Uh, January 16th was kind of the first major one, not even, not even 20 days into the year, and there was the Algerian hostage crisis. Uh, Then there was the meteor that exploded over Russia. That was bizarre. I don't know if you saw videos of that. Uh, The Syrian civil war has continued to rage on, though this year 
uh, there was the use of chemical weapons against their own people. Uh, There was the tragedy of the Boston Marathon bombing. Uh, In India, there were flash floods and landslides that killed over 5,600 people. Those aren't just numbers. Those are real people with relationships and people that love them and people that they loved. Uh, Violence breaks out in Egypt and the persecution of Christians specifically is ramped up. Islamist militants attack mall in Nairobi, Kenya. And more recently, Typhoon Haiyan lands in the Philippines, killing 6,000 people plus. I mean, it's been a full year, has it not? And God has continued in his faithfulness to allow great things into our lives, immense blessings, and yet that's been intermingled with tragedy because we live in a sin-cursed world. A lot can happen, and in hearing a list like that, uh, it kind of puts us in a somber place, and it can even be a bit overwhelming. But today, uh, I want to glory in hope, in the hope of what God's word tells us. Uh, I was privileged actually to preach the first Sunday of this year, and that seems like a really, really long time ago. And uh, today I have the opportunity to preach the last Sunday of this year. And uh, if some of you remember, we looked at 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul is giving his final greeting to Timothy, his true son in the faith. And there he's saying, fight the good fight, because I've fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there's a crown in store for me. And not only for me, but also to all of those who love his appearing those who love the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today, on the last Sunday of the year, I wanna end our time together in much the same way that we began, by looking ahead to the glorious return of our King. Because amidst a whole year of life, amidst a whole year filled with joys and filled with sorrows and pain and suffering and all the different things that we experience, we as followers of Jesus Christ can know that we are heading towards a glorious future where there is only hope, where there is only joy. Two weeks ago, Pastor Eric opened up the book of Isaiah. We looked in chapter nine and verse six. And there we were reminded of the coming of our king to rescue us from sin and from death. There we saw his divinity and his humanity in being the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. And I hope that over this Christmas season, as Pastor Eric encouraged all of us, that you really thought about which one of those names do you need to cling to? Perhaps life has changed drastically over the last two weeks and you've switched that name. And isn't it a joy that our God loves us and cares for us in so many different ways. Pastor Eric mentioned that uh, with the nativity scene, he, he said, you never see in the nativity scene a cross that is overshadowing the manger and the shepherds and all the things that are going on that we typically see. And so I figured uh, while we were adding things to the nativity scene, I would add something else this morning. And so there we have baby Jesus in the manger and we have the cross that's overshadowing it. 
And even then beyond the cross, we see the empty tomb. And if we could get some kind of a symbol, even behind the empty tomb, that represents the glorious return of this king who came once and has promised to come again. And that's what we're gonna see in Isaiah 25 this morning. Father, I just pray that you would show yourself mightily through your word this morning. God, that we would just be so encouraged by these truths, Lord, by your promises that make all things else in this world pale in comparison. God, we love you so much. And we are delighted to spend some time in your word this morning. Thank you for even speaking to us, revealing yourself to us, inviting us into relationship with you and promising us so much, all because of you. In Christ's name, amen. So in Isaiah 25, I just kind of want to help you understand where we are in the book of Isaiah. Chapters 24 and 25 begin to speak about the final end of all things. And uh, in 24 and 25, there's, there's two things that are happening. 24 mainly focuses on uh, the final judgment of God on the earth. And then as we move to 25 and we see our text for today, it focuses more on the final blessing of God on his redeemed. As you skim through chapter 24, uh, you'll see things like this. In verse four, it says that the earth mourns and withers. In verse six, the inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Seven through 11, the wine mourns. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. Joy grows dark in essence the earthly partying ceases. The moment that David foresaw when he was speaking in Psalm 73, when he says, why is it that the wicked prosper? Why is it that life seems to go so easily for them? Uh, but then I entered into the Lord's presence and I discerned their end, which leads him to exclaim, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, there's nothing that I desire besides you, O God. In verse 23 of Isaiah 24, it ends by saying, on Mount Zion, the Lord will establish his glory before the elders. Now here's the thing, church. We don't revel in these truths that we see here in chapter 24. We don't stand back and say, filthy sinners, oh, those who still have guilt, and we shake our fists at them and stand high above them. No, instead we bow low. And we say, God, thank you that in your grace and in your mercy, you chose to look on me and save me because of Christ. And then we move from there and spend our lives to ensure that we have done everything within our means to make the glorious riches of the gospel known to all men. Some of us actually give our lives for the advancement of the kingdom, but all of us leverage our every resource to make his name known and great among the nations. In chapter 24 and 25, there's a dramatic contrast that's happening here. Uh, 24 outlines the final judgment, and 25 outlines the final blessing on God's redeemed. Uh, this is the hope that you and I and all those who are redeemed in Christ have for the second coming of our King. This is what we are all moving towards. And we see in this a fourfold invitation that's found only in the good news of Jesus Christ. 
You see, the gospel, as we said earlier, doesn't end with Jesus coming and dying, but it moves beyond that to the glory that was beyond the cross, the empty tomb and the glorious return of our king. And because of his promised return, the verses that we're now about to read in six through nine will one day become reality. So let's begin in verse six. It says, on this mountain... All right, now we got to stop already. On this mountain, what on earth is it talking about? Which mountain? Well, back in chapter 24, verse 23, it says, on Mount Zion, the Lord will establish his glory. And so it's referring to on this mountain, Mount Zion. And this is a key understanding that we have to have in order to be able to grasp this passage. Uh, For the people of the ancient world especially, geography had huge impact on their day-to-day lives. Uh, They didn't have modern technology. They didn't have modern transportation. And so geography had a huge impact on their lives. Uh, Mountains in particular had a great significance and even a greater significance to the Hebrew people. Uh, As you look throughout their past, mountains have represented so many things throughout the Old Testament. Uh, They represented places of meeting. If you look at Joshua, when he brings the people into the promised land, it's a place where he gathers all of the people together so that he can renew the covenant of God with the people. Uh, It represents places of worship. As you look throughout the Old Testament and you see new kings that are coming into reign and power, what they do is they establish places of worship in all of the high places of the land. Not only that, but it also represents places of refuge. As you see throughout the scriptures, when God is warning his people of impending doom, it says, flee to the mountains, flee to the mountains, get out of there, run, get out of there, flee to the mountains, a place of refuge. And it's also a place of revelation. If you look especially throughout the book of Exodus, God is revealing himself to his people on the tops of mountains. Well, Mount Zion had a special significance It was understood by the people to be the place where God would finally meet with man, where man would worship God, where ultimately God's people would find eternal refuge and where God would finally and fully reveal himself and he would dwell amongst his people. All throughout the Old Testament theology, Mount Zion is representative of the kingdom of the city of God, of the heavenly country. And so as he's speaking about this in Isaiah 25, just kind of have that image in mind. It says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. See also in these four short verses, the all-inclusiveness. It says all peoples, all nations, all the earth, all tears, over and over again, all, 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 all. And so in this, God is being inclusive of all peoples. There's not anyone that's excluded. There's no one who's set off to the side. There's not anyone who hasn't received this gospel invitation. Uh, And then it says this. It says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. A feast. Uh, Okay, so this is not like a brown bagged lunch. So think back to like when you pack your lunch for your kids, maybe you're packing your own lunch now and you grab all of those processed prepackaged things and you throw them in there so that you can rip into them. I had the most unhealthy lunches growing up. I think my mom made me like a cheese sandwich, a bag of Doritos, cookies, and like a crunch bar or something like that and a Kool-Aid, which is just all terrible. 
Uh, it's not one of those kind of lunches that we're talking about. Uh, this isn't a fast food meal. It's not we're going through the drive through real fast, we're heading on to something else, so let's just grab something while we're on our way. Uh, this is not a working lunch, so to speak, no. This is a feast that the Lord of hosts is preparing for all people. And so the first thing that the good news of Jesus Christ invites me to is a luxurious feast. This meal, uh, it's not one of simple sustenance. Look at what it says. He'll make a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. This is not a meal where we're just rushing through and hurrying through. It's a meal of delight that the Lord of hosts is preparing for us. Think back to Thanksgiving, or maybe even think towards your Christmas dinner this year. Uh, It wasn't like, okay, everybody sit down, hurry up. We got to eat. We got to get this over with so we can move on to the next thing. We got to get this done with. No, the feast was the reason for which we gathered. It's the whole purpose that we're here. We don't have to rush on to anything else. There's nothing else that we have to go and do. Everything has been done. And the only thing that's left to do now is to sit down and enjoy the presence of those who are sitting at the table with us. That's exactly what the Lord of hosts is preparing for his people. Throughout the scripture, this feast is referred to as many things. It's referred to as the messianic banquet or the marriage supper of the lamb. It's the special time that God is preparing for his bride for those who are redeemed in Christ, who have their life found only in him. And it is a costly and abundant feast. Nothing good has been withheld. In fact, the finest portions have been brought out. There's nothing in the way. There's, they're pulling out all stops. God has spared no expense in preparing this great feast for his people filled with all of the greatest pleasures. And and so what we can know this morning is that our father is a good father and he loves to give good things to his children. We have a good father that loves us deeply. See in it how personal it is. It says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts himself will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. God is preparing it for us himself. He's not calling other people to do it. He wants to do it personally for us. He takes great care in its preparation. And this passage, this short verse here reminds us that in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. This is the reminder where it tells us in Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good and blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. This is like Psalm 37, four, where we're commanded to delight ourselves in the Lord. And God doesn't make that a difficult task for us to delight in him. He's a good father that loves us and withholds nothing good from us. We're called to do the same thing at this feast that we're called to do throughout the entirety of our lives. And that's to simply enjoy God, to delight in him, to love being with him. And so I wanna ask us this morning, uh, are you living your life knowing that the pleasures of eternity with God 
are far greater than all that this world has to offer. So many times we see the fleeting pleasures and the promises that this world offers and we live and act as if they are more valuable than all of the riches that were promised in Christ. Oftentimes we show by our lives that we prefer to eat out of a dumpster as opposed to sitting at the festal table prepared by God himself with all of the greatest pleasures. We say that we'd rather have something like this where we can dig out of and see what all the world has to offer as opposed to sitting down at the marriage supper of the lamb as we've been invited by God through Jesus Christ. We turn instead to sexual exploits. We turn to the love of money, to the desire for power, to pride in our accomplishments or where we've gotten in our career. We self-medicate ourselves with pornography, with toys, with hours of mindless activities so that we can just forget for a moment the high calling that we have to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We long for bigger vacations and more stuff, thinking that these things are the pinnacle of human enjoyment. Or perhaps we place all of our hopes in a legacy, in raising good children who are intelligent and athletic and have it all together and make us look like stunning parents. We turn to these things instead of turning to the promises of God found in the gospel. And so brothers and sisters, I urge you this morning to not be too satisfied with the things that this world has to offer. To not be too satisfied or to be too at home in this world. Don't jump in a dumpster when the king of the universe has promised to return again and at his return to give you a seat at the table where he himself has prepared a feast of rich food. We look ahead in verse seven. It says, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. This is the glorious future to which all of us are heading. The curse from Genesis 3 is removed in this passage. And no longer does death have its cruel hand on humanity. Death is swallowed up forever and it is now replaced by life. In the good news of Jesus Christ, we are invited not only to a luxurious feast in the presence of the king, but we're invited to enjoy that forever with eternal life. And let us not underestimate this eternal life. It is not life as we know it here on this earth. It is not this lived out forever with all of the sorrows and the pain and the hurt. No, instead, it is the best parts of life paling in comparison to what God has to offer. It is what Jesus said in John 10, 10, that he has come that we might have life and have life more abundantly, life to the max. In verse eight, it says, the Lord is going to wipe away all tears. God Almighty himself, see again the personal nature of God to his children. It says that God Almighty will wipe away all tears. He's not sending somebody else to do this job. He doesn't see himself as above it. No, instead, he lovingly and personally cares for each tear that is shed and he will wipe all of them away 
forever, for all eternity. When the king finally and fully establishes his kingdom, all of the headlines, every single one of them from 2013 that had even an ounce of sorrow in them are going to be erased. Never more to be seen again. And God will ensure that nothing like those headlines will ever befall the children of man for all eternity. It's the moment in time where God is going to make all sad things untrue. That is the hope that we have for when our king returns and only because of the gospel invitation that Jesus Christ has won for us. After that, it says, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Think about this for a moment. The reproach of his people, God is going to take away. What is it talking about? It's talking about all of those who mock you and say, your God is not coming back for you. Your God has surely forgotten about you. I mean, look at your life. You live your life after a fairy tale. Everything that you put your hopes in, everything that you plan your life on, all of that is utterly useless. You're a fool for living in the way that you do. You're a fool for giving up all the things that you can have on this earth. I just think you're kind of an idiot and it's for the weak. That's why you need to believe these things. No, in that moment, when the king returns and establishes his kingdom, the reproach will be removed and we will be vindicated on that day as God reveals himself to be exactly whom we've said he is for all of our lives. So the good news of Jesus, when we wipe away our tears and our reproach is removed, it invites us to an unshakable hope. Not only a luxurious feast, not only eternal life, but also hope unshakable. And so even though things seem bad right now, even in the roughest moments of your life, even in the hardest times, we can have confidence that our sovereign God is on his throne. He's not surprised by anything. And one day, sadness will be extinct and our reproach will be a relic of the past. God offers us unshakable hope. This is the time when the king comes and establishes his kingdom. And as we read in the scriptures, it says that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and every knee will bow before him in full acknowledgement of his kingship, in full acknowledgement of his reign. The most important detail of that reality is when we choose to bow our knee. Because the reality is everyone is going to bow their knee before this coming king. And what makes the difference for all eternity is when we decide to bow that knee. And so I ask us this morning, have you bowed your knee before this coming king? Have you surrendered your life before the Lord Almighty of the universe? Have you come to a place where you said all the dumpster things that this world has to offer pale, in comparison to the promises that we have in Jesus Christ. And I am giving my life for that moment when I can sit down at a luxurious feast in the presence of my king and spend eternal life with him and have unshakable now 
and for all eternity, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Have you bowed your knee before this king? It will make the difference for all eternity. And then I love how this verse ends. I love the way it ends in verse eight. It says, for the Lord has spoken. I mean, what? what hope there is in those words. What else is God gonna say? Like, I promise it's gonna happen. No, I have spoken. I swear by my own name, these things that we're speaking about are going to be true one day. It is certain. God has said it. The king has spoken and it is final. These things are going to become reality. And here's where the passage then gets really, really good. Because in verse nine, it says, and it will be said on that day. Well, it's going to be said by the people of God on which day? On the day when the Lord gives out the final judgment on the earth and he pours out his final blessing on his redeemed. It will be said in that day when the king initiates his forever reign, when he comes finally and fully. This is what will be said. Behold, Behold, this is our God. Behold, it's like he's right there. He's right in front of me. The moment that all of faith has now become sight, the moment that I've waited for, for my entire life, the time that I've been longing for since I met him as my savior, when my eyes will actually look upon him, when I'll feast upon my savior with my eyes and I'll say, behold, It's no longer loving one that I haven't seen. No, now I see him and he's standing right before me. Some of you may have heard of Fanny Crosby. She wrote over 8,000 hymns, perhaps one of the most prolific hymnists in all of history. And Fanny Crosby was blind. And I wanna read to you the first verse in her hymn, My Savior, first of all. And I just want you to think about it as she penned these words, being someone who's blind from birth. She says, when my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my redeemer when I reach the other side and his smile will be the first to welcome me. Think about that. The very first person that Fanny Crosby ever laid eyes on was her savior, Jesus Christ. And in that moment, did she not exclaim, behold, this is my God. And in that moment, when we finally see our savior, we too will exclaim with those in chapter 25, verse nine, and Fanny Crosby, behold, this is our God. It is an expression of wholehearted identification with our king. It is filled with joy inexpressible. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ and its fourfold invitation does not only invite us to a luxurious feast, to eternal life, and to unshakable hope, but it also invites us to infinite joy. Look at what it says the rest of verse nine. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. We have waited for him that he might save us. 
This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Oh, that you and I would wait for our king in such a way that makes it abundantly clear that he is supremely valuable above all else in our lives. This is a picture of the people of God's kingdom eagerly anticipating the promises of God coming to fruition. It is a picture of brothers and sisters in Christ waiting for the moment when God's salvation will be finally and fully established when the king returns. And so I ask this morning, does that describe you? Does that describe me? Are we waiting with eager anticipation for the return of our king? Are you longing for him to come and establish his kingdom in this world? Do you live your life in light of his promised return? Do you live as one that's longing for the feast, as one who believes that these things will become true? Or are we satisfied with the dumpster of this world? Do you grieve now, knowing that one day, all of that will be done away with. Knowing that these things are not reality when the king establishes his kingdom. Do you grieve knowing that things are not as they should be? Do you ignore instead those who have chronic suffering or seasons of deep grief? Are you and I living as emissaries of the king in this world waiting and helping and taking part in the establishing of his kingdom and establishing justice and righteousness on the earth? Do you undergo trial with hope, knowing that the king is coming back to wipe away all of your tears personally? Do you spend your life to invite others into the infinite delight of knowing this great king? At this time, the worship team is going to come up. And and I'm going to ask this morning, I know sometimes uh, we get really excited uh, during some of these songs and we get passionate about the words and the truths that we're singing and it causes us to stand up and rise in worship. But I want to ask that during this song, we instead spend some time considering these truths, considering this fourfold invitation that we have in the gospel considering the fact that our king, when he returns, invites us to a luxurious feast, to eternal life, to unshakable hope, and to infinite joy. And as you are spending time reflecting on those truths, there's a question in the bottom of your notes. It says, does my life reflect that I believe these things to be true? Does my life reflect that I believe these things to be true? Do my thoughts, do my words, do my actions, do my plans, do my hopes, does the way that I deal with life reflect that I believe these things to be true? Will it be possible 
and will it be said of your life and of my life? We have waited. We have waited for the return of our King.